Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistoclus Alexis. I am the host of this year Amateur Hour. And today, we are officially kicking off the podcast by celebrating and revisiting and covering the life and work of one of my personal favorite filmmakers, John Cassavetes. Before we get into the life and work of Cassavetes, I want to give a very special shout out to the top of the show. The theme music that you heard at the very beginning was supplied by my good friend Laura Morin. He wrote and, uh, and performed it, and he's a very good friend of mine and uh, a big supporter of this podcast, this endeavor. Uh, and uh, I wanted to give him a very warm thank you up top and a very special shout out uh, before we get down to it. Now, John Cassavetes, man of many talents. Excellent actor, uh, screenwriter, playwright, director. We are going to be looking at his works as a director. We're going to go movie by movie. But before we do that, uh, I would like to sort of... Uh, there's a distinction, I think, that uh, needs to be made at the top of the show before we get into the nitty-gritty. The nitty-gritty. All right. So, Cassavetti is career-spanning over 30 years. And he has been sort of anointed by critics and film scholars and film buffs alike as a pioneer of independent cinema in America. Now, that assessment, uh, I agree with wholeheartedly. But when you talk about independent cinema, yes, you don't have a studio backing you. You don't have the machine, if you will, just sort of throwing money at every problem. But even still, in independent cinema, somebody has to put the cabbage up and whoever puts it up I mean, there's a good chance they're going to want to have a say and call some shots and sort of, you know, meddle in a director's business. Uh, and Cassavetes essentially did his damnedest to avoid being trapped in those situations. He used a lot of the money from his acting roles to finance his films. He re remortgaged his house in California several times, shot a handful of his movies in his own home. Uh, and all this so he wouldn't be beholden to anyone and so that he could make his movies his way. And that's something to be commended, I think, because it's definitely the path of most resistance. I mean, how much does this cost, you know, paper, to do the hard work, and how much does uh, reels cost? We get it all from the major studios. They help us destroy them. That's the way we work. <laughs> because if we make a good film, they will only suffer. And as they suffer, they come and they say, please make films for us, and we say, no, we don't want to make films for you. Hip, hip, hooray. With that being said, let us begin. Now, Cassavetes was born in 1929 in New York. Uh, Greek parents, one of my people. Uh, his mother, Catherine Cassavetes, was uh, a New Yorker of Re Greek extraction, and she actually acted in several of his films. And She was in uh, Minnie and Moskowitz and A Woman Under the Influence and Opening Night, and she was actually a very good actress and a bit of a scene-stealer. And Cassavetes' father, Nicholas, was born in Greece and came to America as a youth. And John Cassavetes himself grew up in, uh, in Long Island, just outside New York City. Uh, went to Champlain College for a bit, flunked out, hitchhiked to Florida, sort of fucked around for a few weeks, as college-aged college kids are wont to do. And made his way back to New York, 
uh, and enrolled at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is a very prestigious acting school. And that's where he met his wife of 35 years and one of my favorite actresses, Jenna Rollins. And she was the leading lady in many of his films and a fantastic actress. And she gave many, many marvelous performances in the years that she worked with her husband. And uh, we're going to be talking about her a lot today. She's going to be coming up a lot on this on this show. So, uh, they were married in 1954, I believe. They met uh, when Jenna Rollins auditioned for the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. They were married not long after. And they stayed married for 35 years. And, and after Cassavetes uh, left the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, or graduated rather, uh, he basically became a working New York actor. He... Got a lot of guest spots and episodic work in television. Uh, started getting parts in, in B-movies and sort of smaller film productions. And uh, he was still in his 20s at the time when he decided to put together his own acting workshop. This was in the mid-50s in New York. Uh, he and a guy named Bert Lane, who was Diane Lane's father. She wasn't born at the time. She came along several years later. Uh, so Cassavetes and Bert Lane put together this acting workshop in the Variety Arts Building, which was on 46th Street in Manhattan, I believe. And it was basically uh, a building uh, of a bunch of rehearsal spaces, essentially. And they, their workshop was in one of them. I had originally formed this workshop because I had a lot of out-of-work friends who were actors. When I rented this workshop for a year, none of those friends came because I wanted them to uh, uh, do scenes so that producers and directors could come down and watch them, not as a school. But no one showed up and I had this place for a year. So uh, uh, I put an ad in the New York Times and I said, anybody that wants to come down and use a workshop to, to work on acting, come on down. And the next day the place was mobbed with people. And they were all amateur people like uh, pickpockets and, and lawyers, uh, bankers, policemen, uh, uh, students, people off the streets uh, who just wanted to come down and, and work. And they founded it as an alternative to method acting. So method acting, for those who might not be aware, was championed in Russia first by Konstantin Stanislavsky and later by Lee Strasberg in America at the Actors Studio, which was another very prestigious acting academy and which has produced some of the greatest talents to have ever graced the stage and screen. Now, Lee Strasberg was a seminal figure and a great champion of method acting. Uh, he played Hyman Roth in Godfather Part Two, And essentially what method acting does, or what it asks of the actor, is uh, it basically relies on emotional memory and sense memory and drawing on personal experience for one's performance. And Cassavetti wasn't really a big fan of that approach. He was a detractor of it, really. He basically thought it was self-indulgent and uh, kind of a narcissistic practice that sort of shut actors off from their collaborators by, by forcing them to sort of look inward. And he basically regarded it as an alternative to psychotherapy. And so he and Bert Lane put this workshop together as a way of uh, teaching students their own approach to acting, which was much more character-based. And it basically was founded on the premise that acting is supposed to be fun. It's a creative process, and it should be it should be a joyous experience. And if you watch behind-the-scenes footage of uh, of him as a director, like over the course of his career, I mean, he he really did live by those words. He was a force of nature. He was kind of a big kid at times, sort of impulsive and loved to laugh, and and it's kind of, uh, it's an interesting contrast to, to the movies themselves, because if you watch his films, and the, the sort of dark <laughs> existentialist subject matter, you would kind of assume he was the sort of broody and dour individual, but he wasn't like that at all. And 
I, I don't even think of myself as a director. As a matter of fact, I think I'm probably one of the worst directors around. But I do have an interest in, in uh, my fellow man. And so that the material, I think, that we, we come by, and I say we come by, everyone that goes into a film that I have anything to do, that I'm in charge of, is, uh, is creative to the point where they can express themselves and they feel that they can contribute. As a matter of fact, in, in Faces, I, I can honestly say that uh, the film would never have been completed, and it took three years to complete, if it wasn't for everyone's uh, total interest in the human problem, not in the film problem. From from the footage that I've seen, he basically ran a pretty uh, sort of lively and uh, jovial set, if you will. And so he and Bert Lane are running this workshop in New York, and in the mid-50s, uh, the idea for his first film is born. Now, his first film was titled Shadows, and uh, it was starring, starring Lelia Goldoni, Hugh Hurd, Ben Carruthers, Rupert Cross, and Tony Ray, all of whom were students in the workshop. And it essentially follows three siblings, three black siblings, played by Hugh Hurd, Ben Carruthers, and Lydia Goldoni, who are basically each adrift in their own way, each going through their own struggles. They live together in New York, and it's in the 50s. And it just basically follows the three of them over the course of uh, a short time, uh, going through their struggles. And uh, Lydia Goldoni actually was not black at all. She is, I believe, of Italian descent. She played uh, Ellen Burstyn's best friend, and Alice doesn't live here anymore in 1974, many years later. Uh, and so... This film, I won't give too much of the story away, this film was born through an exercise in their, in the Cassavetes and Bird Lane workshop. Uh, it was born through an improvisation in which Goldoni, Hugh Hurd, and Ben Carruthers each all played siblings, just like in the movie. And in January of 1957, uh, Cassavetes essentially started shooting shadows based on this exercise that he had conducted in his class. Uh, and about a month later... This would be in February of 1957. He goes on a radio show hosted by Gene Shepard called Night People. This was a late-night talk radio. And Gene Shepard was a legendary radio host from Indiana. And uh, by then, Cassavetes had starred in a movie directed by Martin Ritt called Edge of the City with Sidney Poitier and Jack Warden Ruby Dee. So he goes on Shepard's radio show. And he and Shepard get into it. They start chewing the fat. And Cassavetes boldly claims that Edge of the City is just scratching the surface and I'm, I'm making a movie about real people and real struggles and this, that, and the third. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. And Gene Shepard says, well, why, where can I see a movie like this? Why aren't these movies being made? And Cassavetes says, basically, if you have $100,000, you'll be able to see one in the not-too-distant future. And what happened after that uh, was that Shepard's listeners... <laughs> sent in a total of $2,000 uh, in donations to to uh, to finance the making of Shadows. And they sent in $2,000 mostly in small bills within a week of Cassavetes' appearance on Shepard's show. And <laughs> he was basically raising money from all over. His agent, Charlie Feldman, chipped in, Robert Rawson, who directed The Hustler, uh, Joshua Logan, who had been directing Jenna Rollins on Broadway uh, in a Patty Chayefsky play, Hedda Hopper, who was a big columnist, uh, just uh, basically scraping money together from <laughs> from a variety of people uh, in the making of Shadows. 
and uh, they had borrowed equipment as well. They had a very bare-bones crew, and a director named Shirley Clark had lent him some equipment. And even, it was really just true indie filmmaking, again, like, that's, I, I know I've brought this up several times, but I mean, they, it was, they were running and gunning, they were shooting in New York without a permit, and trying not to get hassled by the cops, and uh, they basically redressed the workshop itself to look like an apartment, where which is where a lot of the film takes place, and the cast and crew were contributing props and furniture to make it look like a livable space. And the only person uh, working on the film besides Cassavetes who actually had experience working in film was Eric Kolmar, who's a German guy. He was their director of photography. Everybody else was was uh, was a neophyte. And so they, they they that's how they put this movie together. And uh, Seymour Cassell, who acted in many Cassavetes films, and uh, was a lifelong friend. This is where he comes into the picture. He was uh, he had gone to see Cassavetes about a scholarship for the workshop. Cassavetes basically told him, I'm not teaching right now because I'm in the middle of shooting this film. Cassell says, can I come in and watch? Cassavetes says, sure. And Seymour Cassell shows up, sees that it's a bare-bones crew, and just starts lending a hand where it was needed and ended up working on the crew for the duration of the shoot and actually has an associate producer credit. Uh, during the opening credits of the film, you see, uh, you see his name. And I learned how to load magazines. I learned how to boom. I learned how to mix, and it, and it paid off because later when we did Faces, we had a crew of seven, of which I was one for two and a half months before I started my part. So we did it, and and it was the most fun. It was just a, a magical person, and I'm glad. I hope everyone has one in their life. And uh, he actually shows up briefly at the very beginning of the film in an uh, uncredited appearance. And so that's how Shadows was made. That's how it was born. And that's how it was put together. It was shot over four months. And then uh, Cassavetti spent over a year editing it. Now, this is a, a common occurrence in his films. His movies took long to shoot and even longer to edit. <laughs> and uh, there, was, there was some trouble. They had trouble syncing the sound with the picture, they, they had brought in lip readers even to try to try to get it fixed. And uh, even if you see it today, it's been digitally restored and there are still these little patches that are sort of inconsistent that just couldn't be fixed. So in 1958, the first version of Shadows comes out and Cassavetes arranges for some, uh, some late screenings at the Paris Theater in New York. And the results are disastrous. <laughs> People are walking out. <laughs> There's barely anyone left in the theaters by the end of the film. And uh, as a result of this, Cassavetes basically says, okay, if I can if I can get the money to shoot for another 10 days, I can give this film what it needs. And so he, again, he raised the money. They shot for 10 days. The movie, the first version of the film was entirely improvised, true to the exercise that birthed the movie. Uh, but for the reshoots, those sequences were scripted. And by then, over a year had passed from the original shoots, and of course the, the main cast had sort of moved on with their lives, Lilia Goldoni and Ben Carruthers, even though they play siblings in the film, uh, they had actually, they were husband and wife by the time the reshoots came. So some time had passed, I mean, people had moved on from, uh, with their lives, and so they reshoot several sequences, uh, especially the um, so the romance between Lilia Goldoni and Tony Ray's character. Uh, those sequences were part of the reshoots, and those were scripted. And um, 
it's interesting because it was one of uh, the first films in America to sort of tackle interracial relationships. You have Lilia Goldoni, who is a white, who plays a, a black woman pa- who passes for white. She's light skinned. And she uh, gets involved with Tony Ray's character, the second of three dalliances we see her go through in the movie. And she, um, Tony Ray, of course, assumes she's white until he, and he finds out the hard way that she isn't. She, uh, he meets her two brothers, finds out that she's in fact black, and he turns out to be a bigot and a racist, and, you know, uh, it all goes to shit. <laughs> and, uh, but again, this is, um... It was addressing a very sensitive topic for the era. This is in the late 50s. I mean, guess who's coming to dinner didn't come out until 1967. This is a while later. Uh, and again, it just goes through these, follows the lives of these three aimless people in New York. And uh, it sort of leaves a glimmer of hope for the, each of them at the end. It has so much more going for it than a lot of other films because it was a film about uh, uh, young people. And young people are so much easier to talk about than older people. Because young people are willing to express themselves and take chances and lose and, and, and get killed. They can r- race cars or they could, uh, um, they could find, they can find love in things and they can find hatred in things. And all their terms are absolute. So they're easy to talk about. A middle-aged person is not easy to talk about because he doesn't know himself. He'll change from one moment to the next. Uh, they each go through very different struggles. You have Lelia Goldoni again th- going, you see her dalliances with three different men and her just sort of, and sort of figuring herself out. I'm really not very happy. I mean, I'm happy, but I'm not as happy as everybody thinks I am. Why not? Oh, because I feel that I should be farther ahead than I am. You know, everything is passing me by. And How old she's are like you? 20. I've never guessed. Oh, stop. Don't laugh. I'm serious. I have the feeling that I'll never, you know, be smart and I'm never going to get the things that I want. And, uh... Oh, what do you feel like? Tell me what you feel like. I feel like I'm in a, uh... In a cocoon and you can't get out? That's right. How did you know? I didn't think boys were supposed to understand things like that. You see, I am far behind. You have Hugh Hurd, who is the sort of paternal figure of the, of the siblings. He's the oldest, and he's a struggling musician, and his style is a little dated, even though he's got some talent, and he's running around performing shitty gigs all over the place. Uh, and Rupert Cross, the late great Rupert Cross, plays his manager. Once more, girls. I mean, if you want a real mad chick. chick. But look, I'm going to feel like an awful damn fool like introducing those girls. You're an artist. If you make up your mind to do it, you can do it. Look. I was an artist 10 years ago. Now, that's when I was an artist. And Ben Carruthers is the third sibling. He rounds out the trio, and he's uh, he claims to be a musician and a trumpet player, although you never really see him playing it, and he just sort of bums around town with his buddies and bumming cash off his brother Hugh and trying to pick up broads and getting into some shenanigans. Thanks. Maybe I'll just join a small group in Vegas. Benny? What's this I hear about you getting a job? I mean, that really, that really upsets me. You're kidding, aren't you? Very funny, very funny. And that's basically the, the gist of Shadows, and it, it's very good. And the... So the final version comes out in 1959. Now. After 1959. Cassavetes gets a starring role in a, in a series for NBC called Johnny Staccato, where he plays a private investigator now he's in debt 
and he takes the series in part to pay off his debts. And he actually got to direct a handful of episodes on the series, and they, they had given him some creative control at the top. Now, he pays off his debts, but over the course of the run, he started clashing with the studio, and they one of the sponsors got in the way of an episode that had dealt with drug addiction, and they had it pulled, and they ended up airing a Christmas episode five weeks early, and he starts, of course, Cassavetti was none too pleased about it, all, the, all this. And so he starts publicly criticizing the studio and the sponsors to get out of his contract. And long story short, they let him out. And uh, he's kind of in limbo, and he eventually takes a movie... Initially called Middle of Nowhere, it was later released as The Webster Boy. This is in the early 60s. He's shooting it in Ireland, and after shooting it with Seymour Cassell, he and Cassell make their way to London, where Shadows is being screened. And a company called British Lion ended up releasing Shadows in the United States, even though it was an American-made movie. It was actually imported back to the United States by a British company. <laughs> and it was shortly after this that his next movie came about, which is called Too Late Blues, which came out in 1961. Now, Too Late Blues. This was the beginning of a very short stint for Cassavetes as a director under the studio system. I'm John Cassavetes. I'd like to tell you about this motion picture, Too Late Blues. It's about people I know, my age, my generation, the night people, the jazz musicians, the drifters and dreamers, the floaters, the chicks, the smilers, the hangers-ons, the phonies. Too much sex, not enough love. And they live in the world of too late blues. Starring Bobby Darin, Stella Stevens, Seymour Cassell, uh, Everett Chambers, Rupert Cross, Val Avery. And it covers Bobby Darin is the leader of a jazz group. And he's an idealist, you know, a true artist. Not unlike Cassavetes himself. And he gets involved with Stella Stevens, who's a struggling jazz singer herself. He's got a bit of talent, but, you know, not exactly a star in the making. And it basically follows him as he begins compromising his ideals and loses everything. Now, a bit of backstory as to how this movie came, came to be. It's a long story, so I'm going to try to trim the fat and keep the babble to a minimum. So, after Cassavetti shoots The Middle of Nowhere in Ireland, like I said, later released as The Webster Boy in the early 60s, written by Ted Allen. Remember that name, that's going to come up again later. So he shoots this film in Ireland, goes to England, where Shadows is being screened. A company named British Lion puts it out in the United States. They import it back to the United States, essentially. And, wouldn't you know it, Shadows begins to turn a profit. Low budget, but even still, given the way it was put together, it's pretty impressive. Now... After Shadows makes its way back to the United States, an executive at Paramount Studios, Paramount Pictures, named Marty Rackin, contacts Cassavetes, and that was how Too Late Blues came about. He uh, he signs on to be a director for the studio, and it's it's there's some interesting parallels between Cassavetes and the Bobby Darren character Ghost, because because essentially from from day one, as soon as Cassavetes signed on to do this film. He, uh, the compromises began. He wanted Montgomery Clift and Jenna Rollins to be the two leads. Montgomery Clift had developed some pretty serious substance abuse problems uh, by then, and Marty Rackin, the executive at Paramount, sort of poo-pooed that decision. They, he puts in Bobby Darren, and Stella Stevens was chosen to play the uh, the leading lady alongside him. So right, right there, Cassavetes has to sort of back off. 
and he uh, he had a bit more of a say when it came to casting the supporting roles. Uh, but again, he the clashes with the studio continue. He wanted to shoot uh, over the course of six months. The studio wanted him to shoot in 30 days. He wants to shoot it in New York. The studio insists he shoots it in L.A. And it's funny because when you watch the film, knowing especially that it comes right after Shadows, it's like a complete departure. You have Shadows, which is like this gritty, proper indie film, and the sound is still fucked up in certain spots. Uh, and then you cut to Too Late Blues, and everything is nice and clean and polished, and the camera movement is nice and smooth. And it's this, it's re it really is this sort of studio, almost factory product. That said, the parallels between Bobby Darren's character and Cassavetti's are interesting, again, because of those compromises. I got no time for failures. Okay. Make me a success. All right. I know a fairly attractive woman who spends fortunes sponsoring the careers of talented young jazz musicians. What do I have to do? Nothing complicated, just the usual. Also, there are a couple things that show up in there that would sort of become staples in Cassavetti's later work. I mean, the is definitely a, a big look at masculinity in there and masculine insecurity. That's that's a big theme in the film, in Too Late Blues. And um, there's also this very long sequence in the pool hall, this climactic sequence. I mean, and, and it's it's it runs 15 to 20 minutes and it sort of gradually, gradually builds tension until it boils over and, you know, it's like this big climactic confrontation. And again, you see this in a lot of Cassavetti's films, these sort of long sequences where it doesn't really look like there's much happening, but I mean, they're just these these really close and intimate and nuanced examinations of human behavior. Uh, but in any case, Too Late Blues, not the greatest. Definitely an afterthought in the Cassavetti's catalog. It's definitely not something I would recommend if you want to sort of, uh, as an introduction to his work. Uh, that said, Everett Chambers, who plays Benny, the sort of... Uh, the duplicitous agent, if you will, of the two central musicians. He was very good in it. And uh, anyway, the movie ended up becoming... Uh, it was a dud at the box office. The critics were uh, were none too pleased with it. And uh, years after Too Late Blues came out, uh, Cassavetti said in an interview that uh, the movie was essentially doomed to fail, that it never had a chance. And um, by the time he went back out on his own, after uh, his short stint as a director under the studio system. He had no problem publicly criticizing the studio system and, uh, and that whole infrastructure. Hold on, can you, t can you tell him up to my ass in notes with the fucking, the fucking page turning? Anyway, <laughs> so, on to the next. So, despite the failure of Too Late Blues, and uh, despite the fact that Cassavetes didn't make it the way he wanted to, this is, this is how ridiculous show business is. The movie turns out to be a dud. He makes one studio film. It, it shits the bed. And yet, <laughs> Paramount sort of doubles down on Cassavetes. They offer him a five-picture deal with a six-figure fee per picture. <laughs> and uh, his next film as a studio director, uh, and the last one he would make for two-plus decades, A Child is Waiting, which came out in 1963. And this is with Burt Lancaster, Judy Garland, Jenna Rollins, the first time he directed Jenna in a film, Paul Stewart, who I love, and had a really great career. He was in Citizen Kane and The Bad and the Beautiful, Kiss Me Deadly. It was a lot of great credits. 
Paul Stewart, Stephen Hill, Elizabeth Wilson, and it essentially follows developmentally disabled or mentally challenged children in uh, a state-subsidized hospital in California. Burt Lancaster runs the institution. Judy Garland is a newly arrived employee there. She develops a bond with one of the children and, you know, complications ensue, let's say. Now, how this movie came about, and this this one had some... <laughs> this was messy. And you'll... It was essentially the end of Cassavetes' run as a studio director, and you'll understand why shortly. So he signs the big, the big deal with Paramount. But again, the problems start very shortly after. He's working on a script for a war film that Sidney Poitier is supposed to star in called The Iron Man. The project falls through, the studio started fucking with the script, but when the project was in development, Cassavetes had met with Burt Lancaster uh, about a role in the film. Ca uh, Lancaster tells Cassavetes that he's working on a film called The Child is Waiting that's being produced by Stanley Kramer at United Artists, and Cassavetes, seeing that his war film is already being fucked with and they've barely even gotten started on it, he jumps at the opportunity to, to direct The Child is Waiting. Uh, which was written by Abby Mann, who, who uh, wrote Judgment at Nuremberg that Stanley Kramer also directed. Stanley Kramer, big producer, big director. Uh, he had done Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, like I said, written by Abby Mann. Judy Garland and Burt Lancaster were both in Judgment at Nuremberg, so he cast them for A Child is Waiting, thinking, I don't know, lightning could strike twice, I guess, whatever the fuck. And so... They're the two leads for A Child is Waiting. He brings in Cassavetes as a director who, and I believe he replaced Jack Clayton, who uh, had a lot of success with a movie called A Room at the Top and directed uh, The Great Gatsby and The Pumpkin Eater. So Cassavetes replaces him, and they go to the Pacific State Hospital in Pomona, California, which is where a lot of the movie was shot, and they cast a lot of the kids who were based at that institution were actually in the film. And uh, Cassavetes has gone out there and so had Burt Lancaster for research and preparation for the film. And Lancaster himself actually threw himself into the project. His, his son uh, had actually spent time at a, at a private school for emotionally disturbed kids, which is not exactly the same thing as being mentally challenged, but still a very personal project to him, and he was all in. And Judy Garland, uh, by then, had also developed some substance abuse problems of her own, and uh, she would show up late to, to, to shoot, and some, some days she wouldn't show up at all, and the shoot actually ended up getting delayed by a full four weeks. And so they shoot the film, and now comes the editing process. Now, Cassavetes and Kramer were butting heads. Stanley Kramer, after Inherit the Wind, A Judgment in Nuremberg, he had become, I guess, Hollywood's designated social critic, and he essentially wanted a film that was sort of heavy on the sentimentality and looking at these children as victims and saying that they they basically didn't have much choice but to stay confined to these institutions because they could they just couldn't survive in the outside world and so on and so forth. And Cassavetes wanted to make a film essentially that said, no, these children can be anywhere and it's basically us who are the problem and it's probably us that should reconfigure our perception of children who were mentally disabled, mentally challenged. And so they butted heads over this, and there is a scene in the film between Paul Stewart and Stephen Hill that sort of, I think, encapsulates what Cassavetes was going for. Do you believe what Clark says? 
How does it go? We have to accept these children as they are, just as they are. Their life has meaning. It has purpose. Yes. What purpose does it have, Mr. Goodman? When, uh, when we first had Rose, I thought it was the greatest tragedy that could happen to a person. We had so many plans for it. Then we had a child you can't even take out in the street without people staring. But Rose doesn't know she's a tragedy. So the tragedy must be in ourselves. And facing it ourselves. But that said, the editing process comes and Stanley Kramer essentially took the film from Cassavetti's in the cutting room and he re-edited it himself. And there's uh, there's some stories that have come out of this depending on who you hear it from, I mean, there's varying degrees of violence, but essentially, Cassavetes finds out that that Stanley Kramer has taken the film from him, that he's editing it behind his back, and this, that, and the third, and there's a big confrontation that ensues. And uh, Kramer screened it for several executives, and Cassavetes was there, and after seeing that first screening, Cassavetes was incensed and said and told Kramer to take his name off the film. His name ended up staying on it, but it is probably the least personal... That in Big Trouble, which we'll get to later. Uh, it's probably the least personal film Cassavetes ever made, and it, it essentially ended his run as a studio director. And uh, I don't know if you want to call this a moral victory for Cassavetes, but the picture turned out to be a flop, and it made less than half its $2 million budget back. So, uh, you know, you make of that what you will. <laughs> in any case. <clears throat> All right, on to the next... Move along, move along, move along. Now, the next Cassavetes film is called Faces. And this might be my favorite of his. This came out in 1968. So five years after A Child is Waiting came out. Now what Faces covers is it's about the disintegration of a marriage between a middle class couple in California and the husband and wife who are played by uh, John Marley and Lynn Carlin they each engage in these sort of uh, dalliances with other partners. And and uh, it's basically two people who are faced with the fact that their marriage is empty and there's nothing holding them together. And they're confronted with this and the, the their reactions to it and the course of action they each take after that is uh, is very messy. It's covering middle-class America and the way, the way middle-class people live. And it's sort of a... Kind of like those Michelangelo Antonioni movies of the early 60s, where it's sort of like the plight of people who have everything on paper, but really don't have shit. So, um, this was shot in black and white. It was the last movie, movie Cassavetes made in black and white. Came out in 1968. The cast is John Marley, Lynn Carlin, who played the central husband and wife, Jenna Rollins, Seymour Cassell, Dorothy Gulliver, and Val Avery. Now... Like I said, 1968, this is five years after he makes A Child in Waiting. And what happened in the meantime was he uh, took a bunch of acting roles, kind of became a journeyman actor, if you will, uh, and he was in The Dirty Dozen. He did that, did that in 1967, got nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and that actually reunited him with Ben Carruthers from Shadows. Uh, they acted in the film together. So he took a bunch of acting roles and used the money from those, those jobs to finance faces. They started shooting it with just $10,000. The movie ended up costing over 200000 which still isn't very much money, even in 1968. In America, we could do many more things. It costs us more money, but we have more credit. 
So everything is a credit plan. You can buy gasoline on credit. You buy a house on credit. You buy uh, uh, cars on credit. You buy families on credit. Diapers on credit. Everything goes on credit. So we decided we'd come up with a great idea that we would buy all our film equipment. But they wouldn't give us any credit. <laughs> so we started our film without any money. And we just used people that would help us to make the film only because of their idealistic uh, attitudes toward filmmaking, which is, in America, a business, not an art. So we are saying, with your business, so we'll try to make it some kind of an art. And uh, they shot it over six months, much of it in the Cassavetes home in California. And this film, man, I mean, you see at the very beginning, like, the John Marley's character, he's middle-aged. And he has some sort of middle management corporate gig. He calls himself a modest success in the uh, in the film. And he comes home from work, and you see this very early on. He and Lynn Carlin are the husband and wife. And you see from the outset that there's really nothing holding them together. He comes home, and his interactions with her are basically just... They're jousting, they're throwing these quips back and forth, and gossiping... And you see there are these, these, these bits of just empty laughter. And you're just watching this sort of husk of a marriage. And they, uh, and John Marley essentially, in a moment of insecurity, uh, says, I want a divorce. Which is probably for the best. Because <laughs> like I said, there isn't really much keeping these two together. I mean, there's not, it's really not much of a partnership. And uh, what happens is he engages in a dalliance with Jenna Rowland's character, Jeannie, who is a call girl. And Lynn Carlin goes out on the night, uh, goes on a night on the town. You have to properly enunciate. Well, you know it takes years and years of practice. Um, so Lynn Carlin goes for a night, night on the town with friends. They pick up an aging playboy, played by Seymour Cassell. And she engages in a one-night stand with him. And so the two of them look for, I don't know, companionship, love, affection, elsewhere. And uh, the results are pretty messy. And there are some really great moments in the movie, especially when John Marley goes, he tells Lynn Carlin he's leaving her. And he goes to Jenna Rollins. And Jenna Rollins, like I said, is a call girl. And she has some, she has some company over. She's there with a colleague. And there's two men. Two business types in suits. One of whom is played by Val Avery. Another Cassavetes regular. And this is my favorite moment in the movie. Is that she... You see Jenna, her colleague, and these two business types. These Johns, these clients. And again, it's that masculine middle-aged insecurity that comes out there. They're putting them down and kind of shitting on them. And what are we doing here with two whores and this, that, and the third. And Val Avery and Jenna Rollins end up in her bedroom. And they sit down. And you watch Val Avery disarm himself. And he's talking about his marriage and how his son isn't going the way he wanted him to. And, and again, much like John Marley's character, it's just his life is not going the way he hoped. Even though he sort of checked off all those middle class boxes, you know. The job, the wife, the house, and the son off to college. And he's disarming himself and he's being vulnerable. He's confiding in Jenna. Swimming track. 
his tennis shoes. Jeannie, you know what it is to be a promo man in a firm like mine, huh? I tell you, you meet more millionaires and more presidents than you dream could exist. And that seems like a big thing to you, huh? So what have I got after all those years? A big house, a kooky wife, and a kid who wears sneakers. And you see Jenna is giving him her undivided attention. And she's giving him this look of such warmth. And I believe this was shot with a handheld camera. As Valerie's confiding in her and she's just she's just looking at him and listening to him talk and just being there, being present. The camera is, is zooming in on Jenna as she's watching Valerie's character and listening to him confide in her. And it's a lovely moment. And then Valerie's character shits all over it. <laughs> and the insecurity comes out. He's disarmed himself. And now he has to save face, so he, he, he leaves the room, untucks his shirt, musses up his hair so he can make it look like he was he had just been getting laid in the bedroom instead of, you know, pouring his heart out. Hey, Jeannie, baby! Hey, you're all right, Jeannie, baby! And that essentially sums up faces in a nutshell. It's just these depictions of, of insecurity from middle-class people who have gone the conventional route and have nothing to show for it, really. So that is Faces in a Nutshell. And it was a turning point for Cassavetes. Like I said, it's a proper Cassavetes film. I mean, in terms of subject matter, and there are these, a lot of handheld camera movement and, and these sort of long sequences, which would sort of become trademarks of his. And again, just an intimate look at these relationships. Uh, and it's kind of shot like it's it, it's shot so intimately that it's almost like a um, kind of documentary style, if you will. Nobody cares. Nobody has the time to be vulnerable to each other. So we just go on, you know. I mean, right away our armor comes out like a shield and goes around us, and uh, we become like mechanical men. <laughs> and I called you a mechanical woman, huh? I got news. I'm so mechanical. Honey, it's absolutely ludicrous how mechanical a person can be. <laughs> I am the sexiest guy in the world. I have blonde hair. And it was a turning point in terms of recognition as well. He got nominated for three Oscars. He got nominated for Best Screenplay. Seymour Cassell got nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He, uh, Jack Albertson ended up winning that year for a movie called The Subject Was Roses. And Lynn Carlin, uh, who was not a professional actress, 
She got nominated for Best Supporting Actress, lost to Ruth Gordon, who was in Rosemary's Baby, which John Cassavetes starred in, coincidentally. Now, Lynn Carlin, I want to I talk about her for a minute. She was fantastic in Faces. And she was not a professional actress. She was working as a secretary for Robert Altman at a company called Screen Gems. And um, she was working, I guess, across the hall from Cassavetes. He approached her and asked her to read for the part of Maria. And she read for it. And she hadn't heard back. She ended up getting fired <laughs> from her secretary job. Because I guess, you know, this whole endeavor with faces and reading for the role, I guess, it took her away from her work as a secretary. Or I guess Bob Altman wasn't too pleased. So she read for the role. She was in the running for the part. And she hadn't heard back. Some weeks passed. And she was pregnant. So she finally went to Cassavetes and said, Look, are we going to do this or aren't we? Because in uh, a few months from now, I'm going to look much bigger. So if you want me for this, we best get moving. And... In the time that it took to shoot, edit, and release Faces, Lynn Carlin had two children. <laughs> now, <clears throat> his next movie was called Husbands. This came out in 1970. Cassavetes himself stars in it with Peter Falk and Ben Gazzara. They play three friends. And the movie begins with the death of the fourth friend of the bunch. And our guys in their 40s, also well-to-do, living in suburbia. Again, people who on paper have everything. And their friend dies, and uh, they bury him, they go to his funeral, and his death basically forces them to reevaluate where they are in their lives, the choices they've made, how little involvement they really have in their lives. They've basically put themselves into a box, and their friend's death basically prompts them to look at all that, and their reaction to it, again, is very messy. They basically just turn turn everything on its head, and they basically go... On uh, on a boys' weekend out, they go on this on this bender, and they basically practice some some escapism for a few days, escaping their their grief, their guilt, probably their own fear of death, the state of their lives, you name it. And they basically just decide to run away from it all. And the <laughs> and the resulting behavior is it's messy, it's impulsive, it's abusive at times, it's masturbatory. <laughs> and um, it's just a look at the behavior of people in crisis and who don't really who aren't really capable of articulating the crisis that they're in I mean they we made a film that seemed to, to be quite truthful and honest the way we felt about things and uh, it was a whole period of life that had been lost and uh, we wanted to make this film to express how people without a lot of education might feel about a death and what they would really feel about their mortality and, and how they would mess that up and still not be able to articulate it clearly. The movie begins, they go on a bender, they end up in a bar and <laughs> they basically gather, they're basically getting plastered and they hold an impromptu scene contest with all the other drunks there. And it's this really long, just fucking messy sequence, and it ends with them puking their guts out in the bathroom. And that moment in the bathroom is the closest they really come to telling each other the truth. And I'm sure there's some kind of symbolism to them, to them puking their guts out. At least Peter Falk and John Cassavetes' characters. But even then, 
in those few moments where they actually try to be honest with each other and tell each other what they're feeling and just what and just try to articulate their discomfort uh they're incapable i mean peter fox character tries to do it he tries to confide in cassavetes in the bathroom after this agonizing puke session and he's just incapable of putting it into words listen gus gus i want to tell you how i really feel i mean i want to tell you what's really bothering me i'm going to tell you now what it is what it must be because it's not the sickness i can live with that now here's what it is it's it's a it's a, a tremendous need an anxiety it's a uh you see, that's what happens. I forget what it is. I mean, I mean, what is it? It's got to be important, right? Because, well, like, what are you feeling? I mean, what are we supposed to be feeling? Because what I'm feeling, I don't know what I'm feeling. You see what I mean? And so after that, they basically decide to put their lives on hold. Ben Gazzara's character actually decides to do it permanently and they fuck off to london where they engage in further debauchery <laughs> and so they go to london it doesn't go as planned <laughs> i guess it's i don't know maybe they're trying to reclaim their youth or make up for lost time they 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 get dressed up in tuxedos they try to pick up some broads they go to they go to gamble and <laughs> let's just say the weekend doesn't really turned out as planned and they ultimately have to make a choice which i won't reveal and that's basically the gist of the film. I mean, uh, there's some really great performances, and this this film actually birthed a friendship between Peter Falk, John Cassavetes, and Ben Gazzara, and it was a it was a lifelong friendship. Peter Falk and Cassavetes had actually worked together on a some shitty movie called Machine Gun McCain, uh, so they had worked together once before, but they weren't they weren't very close, and they actually became friends on this shoot. And Peter Falk was actually really frustrated with <laughs> with Cassavetes' style of directing. Uh, in the sense that he, he Cassavetes never really gave explicit direction. It was all so original. It was all so unfamiliar. Uh, and I was fighting it, you know, and I wanted to do what I was used to doing. Because during Husbands, I could kill him. You know, I, know. I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill him. I didn't understand what Nally was doing. I didn't understand the picture. I didn't know what I was doing. And I started out, I tried to be polite. So I said to him, John, I just want to say this. I'd like to work with you again as an actor. But as a director, never. Do you hear what I'm saying? Never. <laughs> never use. And then and I went. went. <laughs> I went. So... Cassavetes cuts the film, uh, and some interesting production notes. The money uh, initially came from an Italian guy. His financial sources were uh, suspicious, to say the least, because apparently, uh, legend has it, that the money to finance the film would be delivered in cash in suitcases. <laughs> so you make, you make of that what you will. And then Columbia Pictures ended up coming through with uh, the money to finish the film, and, the, and they ultimately distributed it. However, uh, after the movie came out, it actually was very, the reception was very divisive and a lot of people weren't a fan of uh, that really long barroom sequence and the, uh, and the vomiting sequence as well that came right after it. Those did not go over well <laughs> with critics or the audience and actually Columbia, even though they had promised Cassavetes final cut on the movie, they actually stepped in 
and ended up releasing a different cut. I think the the public opinion of the movie has has improved over time. And actually, Cassavetti spent a lot of time recutting it because initially the focus was on was more on Ben Gazzara's character, and he actually spent nine months in the cutting room, sort of reworking it and making the film more about the the collective, the three characters as a single unit. And even still, after the film was released, I mean, <laughs> people were walking out of the theater, and it it wasn't well well received by by a great many people. And when they came out, they came right in the middle of the revolution, which was anti-middle class, and here we were doing a picture about the middle class and how important that was to our society. So it didn't go down well at that particular time, but but um, I found it very amusing since almost everybody that was watching the film that was antagonistic to our lifestyle was, came from the middle classes. Uh, but nonetheless, it's also worth noting it's, this, this movie was very personal to Cassavetes, unlike A Child is Waiting, and <laughs> that his older brother had actually died very young at the age of 30. And again, this movie deals with grief, among many other things, among many other <laughs> existential quandaries. And I don't know, a lot, of people, a lot of people shit on the barroom sequences and the vomiting scene. I don't know. To me, it's actually pretty simple. I mean, you have... You have they're masturbatory sequences depicting masturbatory behavior, and that's... I don't know, but I guess that's what really what it comes down to for me. In any case. Moving on. So his next film came out in 1971. This was a quick turnaround for him. Uh, Cassavetes directed a movie called Minnie and Moskowitz, which stars Jenna Rollins, Seymour Cassell. Cassavetes himself has a smaller role uh, as Jenna Rollins' married lover. Timothy Carey shows up, one of my favorite character actors, a notorious scene stealer. He's going to be coming up a lot on this show as we as we go along, not just today, but in the future as well. And it's essentially a love story. And <laughs> Cassavetes said that he made the movie because he didn't think that two people could get married anymore. And essentially what you have is the two central characters, Jenna Rollins and Seymour Cassell. Jenna Rollins is sort of a... She's, she works in a museum, she has a good paying job, she's a good looking woman, she's fairly successful, and yet she has this emptiness in her life. She has, she has a boyfriend who is not available, like I said, he's married. Uh, he shows up whenever he pleases, just sort of comes and goes. Uh, so she has this tremendous void in her life. And on the other side, you have Seymour Moskowitz, who's played by Seymour Cassell. Doesn't really have much ambition, he works as a parking lot attendant, he parks cars for a living. Uh, he's a solitary figure, and it's funny because you have you have Jenna Rowland's character who's basically jaded and a bit of a cynic, and she talks about how there's this scene with a friend of hers called Florence. They go to see a Humphrey Bogart movie. They go to see Casablanca, and Florence is basically the cautionary tale because she's got to be in her 60s, and she lives alone, and, and there's basically this sequence between them, this scene where Jenna Rowland is basically talking about how she hates how how movies set her up to believe in love and they put all these romanticized ideas of love and life in her head and she knows she's being set up and yet she still falls for it and on the other side of this you have Seymour Moskowitz who is terribly lonely he doesn't really have much going on in his life he spends most of his waking hours by himself and you see him walking around New York and literally trying to sort of to force, if not bully, his way into these interactions with, with women, and just <laughs> in these bars, and he pretends that they know they've seen each other before, and that they, they you know they know each other from someplace, often with disastrous results. Uh, 
And yet, no matter how many times he fails or gets rejected, there is he's he remains an optimist, and he ends up ditching his his job in New York. His cautionary tale is basically Timothy Carey's character. They have this this wonderful scene in the diner early on. I'm 48 years old. I get naked. I look at my big belly. My legs are getting skinny, and my chest is getting big like a woman. Life is going on. I'm not getting nowhere. But I don't care. What the hell? Fat, skinny, broad, wide. I'm not a fashion model. Look at that love arms, huh? Took a lot of shit to build that up. And shortly thereafter, his character basically decides to fuck off from New York, and you see him walking the streets, and he's surrounded by people, and yet totally alone. So he leaves New York, he goes out to California, and <laughs> he meets Jenna Rowland's character after a disastrous date with Val Avery's character, Zelmo Swift. Minnie, you know what my trouble is? You know what my trouble is? I got hair down my back and on my chest and down my arms, but not on my legs. My legs are very smooth. Oh, jeez, what am I? I'm embarrassing you. No, no, that's okay. I... Listen, I'm going to have the veal piccata. Gee, I don't know why I can't get that feeling across to you. I can't get you to feel what I'm feeling. It's very hard. It is very hard. And what you see is, uh, like I said before, is Seymour basically trying to will this relationship into existence. He falls for Minnie. And she's jaded and sort of... I don't know, I don't want to say defeated, but she definitely doesn't have a lot of hopes as far as companionship and love and partnership are concerned. It's funny because Criterion Channel kind of describes this. It's on Criterion Channel if you, if you want to see it. They basically build it as a, as a screwball comedy of sorts, and I kind of disagree because the screwball comedies, which were, which were around primarily in the late 30s, it doesn't really check off... Minnie and Moskowitz doesn't really check off all those boxes. I mean, the... The screwball comedy typically is there's like sort of battle of the sexist thing happening. There's a power struggle, and the woman is the bigger personality, and she's calling the shots. And you know, the central couple end up together at the end, and there's a happy ending, and there's there's a, there's a fast pace to it, and this there's a very specific rhythm to the screwball comedy and the dialogue and the dynamic between the two central characters. And uh, that's really not the case here. I mean, it's it's basically. In Minnie and Moskowitz, it's basically Seymour who's taking initiative and trying to and trying to make something happen between him and Minnie. Come here. Seymour! Look, I think about you so much, I forget to go to the bathroom. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, Seymour, we have nothing in common. I know it. And don't look at me like that. I'm always going to look at you like that. I'm always going to look at you like that. I don't care if we're together 500 years. I'm always going to be excited by you, and to me, you're always going to be new. So that's it. And I'm telling you, I look at other women and I'm with them and you know something? It's nothing. I see where you're such a nice guy. Oh, bull. Let me see that face again. Seymour, it's not the right face. That's not the face I dreamed of. That you're not the guy I'm in love with. Unlike the characters, a lot of the characters in the faces and a lot of the characters in several of Cassavetti's films and in Husbands especially, Seymour Moskowitz has no problem telling you exactly what it is he feels. He just lays it all out in very simple and practical terms. And yet, that doesn't make 
his attempt to build a relationship with many any easier. <laughs> he still gets resistance, and that's true of life. Even when you say what's on your mind, that doesn't mean. Again, it just comes. It just comes back to what's true of life. It's a very simple truth. Even when you just lay your cards on the table and say how you're feeling and what you want, that doesn't always. That doesn't always mean you know shit's gonna end up nice and tidy with a bow on it, and you get your way, and the two of you walk off into the sunset, and it's happily ever after. There's. There's gonna be some resistance, and that's basically what the, what the movie covers is this relationship in the making and uh it's a good one i like it a lot and i, I especially love <laughs> those two scenes between uh seymour and timothy carey and uh jenna and val avery that that disastrous date and jenna has jenna does this really wonderful thing in the movie it's it's it's, it's a, a really great detail she has these massive sort of hexagon-shaped sunglasses that cover half her face, and you see her at several points in the movie. Whenever she feels uncomfortable or she's, she's you know, trying to retreat or, you know, she feels uneasy, she she just puts these these massive glasses on. And it's a, it's a great little detail. I love it. And she's fantastic as always, and so is Seymour. All right, moving on. Can you tell I've got notes? I'm fucking up to my ass and paper. This next one. A Woman Under the Influence. This came out in 1974. And this one is a powerhouse. This is some... <laughs> so essentially, it follows a woman, played by Jenna Rollins, and her husband, played by Peter Falk. Two fantastic performances. And Jenna Rollins' character is a bit of a strange bird. She is uh, what John Cassavetes describes her as socially inept. And her husband, played by Peter Falk, is a construction worker and he comes from an ethnic background and he looks at everything in sort of very practical and simple terms and even though he loves his wife for who she is he does he has a very very limited understanding of her behavior and he's also not the brightest bulb let's face it and so his lack of understanding of of his wife and her social ineptitude basically puts a strain on her marriage and uh a lot of turmoil ensues spoiler alert uh, he has her committed to a mental institution. She comes out. Of course, she comes out of the uh, the mental hospital unchanged. And uh, further turmoil ensues. And this, this great agonizing storm comes out of it. And um, much like Minnie and Moskowitz, I mean, this is really a love story. But like I said, it's, uh, there, will be a lot, there are a lot of moments that will make you uncomfortable in this one. There's really a lot to unpack here. Because you have... You have Mabel, Jenna Rollins' character, who is essentially, as Cassavetes described her, she is socially inept. Not mentally ill. And Jenna Rollins herself didn't see Mabel as mentally ill. She said this in, in interviews many times before. She was convinced that the people around Mabel were certifiable. But she did not think Mabel herself was, was crazy. And now... You have this couple who is so madly in love. And, and you see, they have their own little inside jokes. And Peter Falk, for his for all his his lack of understanding and his sort of brutishness and his temper, and he is abusive to her in, in several instances, and you see these other moments of, of just pure warmth and tenderness, and he really is crazy about her. If we're talking about Nick... You're talking about an Italian guy who works in the construction. His father was a construction guy. This is not a guy that went to college, and there's a right way and a wrong way, and this is how you do it, and that's how we was brought up. 
But the fact is, he had a streak, something in him that made him attracted to, to Mabel. And Mabel was not mainstream. And Mabel was not down the middle. Mabel was a little, I mean, she was a little bit off. It was the fact that she wasn't mainstream. The fact that she had this eccentric side to her, that's what appealed to Nick. But it was that kind of thing that made Nick complicated, ambiguous. But you have Mabel, his wife, whose happiness is so directly dependent on her husband and her children. And you see her with her, with her children. She's basically a buddy to them. And it, there's, there, there are these really sweet moments between them. And you basically see that her, her, her husband and her children are her entire life. And that when, she, when they aren't around, when her husband's off at work, her children are off at school, she gets anxious, she's incapable of being alone, she doesn't know how to handle solitude. where her solitude and her devotion to her family actually produces some frustration in her because when you're that emotionally invested, when your happiness is that dependent on the people around you, the people in your life, naturally those expectations, that investment is going to, you're going to want to return on that emotional investment. And so in these moments of frustration, she sort of, uh, she sort of acts out and, um, that's where he makes the terrible decision to have his wife committed. And now you see as well that he's, he's sort of, he comes from an ethnic background and as much as he loves her, he's kind of torn between two women because he has his mother, who's basically a classic Italian mother in the movie, played by John Cassavetti's mother, uh, Catherine. Uh, he's basically torn, torn between his wife and his mother. I thought it was so heroic, his, his fighting for his wife, and being squeezed terribly by a very, very powerful Italian mother. Yes. And the things she was saying were true. It was just confusing. You couldn't, you couldn't say, no, that's not true, Mom. She's not like that. She, yes, she was like that. And uh, he ends up making a terrible decision, an ill-advised decision. That sort of throws uh, their family's entire dynamic out of whack. And so basically, for much of the film, you are watching the results of Peter Falk's inability to understand his wife's social ineptitude and how his misdiagnosing her as mentally ill leads to tremendous stress and turmoil in their home. I made a mistake, which I did. I'm sorry, but so what? 
said without giving too much away uh the movie ends much like shadows it ends with uh with a glimmer of hope and this is the other thing too that's true of cassavetti's films and this is true of shadows it's true of faces a woman under the influence and many of the films that came after there is no closure again a very simple fact of life i mean people go through stress and turmoil and obviously you know, relationships take work, they're complicated, and you go through these these crises. And yeah, maybe you come out of them, maybe you don't. But the fact remains that, like, what you see in the film is probably as bad as it's going to get for Nick and Mabel Longetti, the central couple. But even still, you just see them. They come out of this, the storm passes, they're back together. And the movie ends with them essentially just trying to carry on after the hell that uh, that the two of them have been through. If that phone is ringing, the chances are it's my mother. And that I don't answer it. <laughs> that is a big breakthrough. So that uh, I, uh, my appreciation of my wife and what we have together is much more meaningful now as a result of this experience. So we'll let her wait and I'll call her tomorrow. I think it's optimistic, yes. I do too. And so a bit of backstory about the making of this film. This was actually this was actually really interesting because initially John Cassavetes wrote this as a play and he took it to Jenna. And uh, Jenna essentially told him, like, this is great, but there's no way I could do this on stage eight shows a week. Like, this is gonna, this is gonna kill me. I mean, it's it's such a demanding role. And if you if you see the movie, which which I hope you do, I mean, it's <laughs> you'll understand that. And so, because she she would just couldn't put herself through this for eight performances a week, John Cassavetes essentially went back, reworked it, uh, and turned it into a screenplay, and that's how the movie was was born. As far as accolades and recognition are concerned, this was probably the most celebrated film of Cassavetti's career, but it actually had... Um, they actually ran into some, some difficulty. As usual, Cassavetti's put a lot of the money up himself, and Peter Falk and his wife actually put up a considerable sum. Um, somewhere in the vicinity of, I think... I read $500,000, but General Rollins has said that Peter Falk and his wife actually contributed uh, a considerable sum in the film's budget. And it was shot in a real house in Los Angeles. And after the film was done, Cassavetes couldn't find distribution to the point where he basically started calling up theaters personally <laughs> and, and trying to arrange screenings on his own. He said, hey, he said let's go down to the all-night um, newsstand. I said, okay. And I said, then we got right there. And I said, now, how, now what? He said, let's get papers from all the Chicago, San Francisco, wherever we want to play. And he said, then we'll look in the theater section and we'll see where a movie we like is playing. He said, and then I'll call him up. He said, they'll take my call, if only to say, I told John Cassavetes to go take a flying leap. 
and it was shown at art houses and college campuses uh, until eventually uh, the movie got into the New York Film Festival and that's what got it the buzz that uh, that it deserved. And it went to, it got nominated for several Oscars. John Cassavetes was nominated for Best Director and Jenna Rollins was nominated for Best Actress. This was in 1974, so Ellen Burstyn ended up winning for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, but at the Golden Globes as well, they got some accolades. Jenna won Best Actress in a Drama at the Golden Globes. Uh, and the movie was also nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama, Best Screenplay, and Best Director for Cassavetes. So a bit of a slow burn, but uh, but the movie did get the recognition it deserved. So easily the, uh, the most celebrated and decorated film of Cassavetes' career. And rightfully so. On to the next. The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. This came out in 1976, and I'm really fond of this film. So it essentially follows uh, the character of Cosmo Vitelli, who was played by Ben Gazzara, a fantastic performance. Cosmo Vitelli, he owns a strip club in Los Angeles, and he um, he likes the good life. He enjoys living a life of leisure, and he, uh, he gets into debt to the mob. His poker habit ends with him owing the mob $23,000, and they basically force him to uh, to kill the uh, the Chinese bookie mentioned in the title, and they promise to wipe the slate clean, and his debt is forgiven, and so on. Now, I guess in the superficial sense, this is a gangster picture, but it, it isn't really. And it's a really interesting character study because you have this guy Cosmo Vitelli. He has a past as you'll find out in the movie, and it's only alluded to. But he has a past, and you see a guy who, it looks like, at least to me, has taken great care and gone to great lengths to sort of build himself a new persona and sort of make himself into the kind of man that, uh... <laughs> this idealized man that he that he wants to be. Everything takes work. Now, we'll straighten it out. You know, you gotta work hard to be comfortable. Yeah, a lot of people kid themselves, you know. <laughs> they, they, they know when they were born. They know where they're going. They know go, whether they're going to go to heaven, whether they're going to go to hell. They think they know that. They kid themselves. Right? But the only people who are, you know, happy are the people who are comfortable. That's right. That's right. Well, look. Look at me. Right? I'm only happy when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I can play the fool, when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself. You understand? Yeah. And that takes work. Gotta work overtime for that. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter who you are, what personality you choose. And you basically follow this guy around. He has, he has, you look at Cosmo and he has, all his relationships are pretty much superficial. He doesn't really have any interactions of substance with anyone. He surrounds himself with beautiful women. He has a girlfriend that he, uh, he doesn't really treat like a partner. But it's interesting because you see him running this strip club and it's, it's not a particularly glamorous profession. And he... He arranges the strip show, and there are these musical numbers, and the MC is a terrible performer. 
Um, but they're Cosmo's numbers. They're his babies. They're his pride and joy. They're essentially an extension of Cosmo himself. And you just see him... You just see this conflict of him fighting to preserve what's his. Vince, I can't understand Sonny. Uh, well, well, who's on stage now? The, 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 uh, the, the short girl? Uh, Margot Donna, right? And the tall girl? Right, Sherry. Yeah. And uh, what, what number is it? Is it the Paris number? The Paris number, for Christ's sake. You've been in the place seven years. You don't know what the Paris number is? Well, are there signs on the wall? P-A-R... The Paris number. Are there letters on the wall that say P-A... And Ben Gazzara has told this story in, in interviews before. He actually had a hard time figuring out this movie and the character of Cosmo. He tells a story where they, he, early on in the making of the film, they were shooting a scene in the limo, and Cassavetes was behind the camera. He uh, was actually a, a great handheld camera operator, and he, uh, he worked the camera himself in a lot of his pictures. And uh, he and Cassavetes had an interaction in the limousine on that day of shooting, in which Cassavetes went on this rant. Like, now, he was telling me that Cosmo... This man, this this ordinary man, his dream, his art, is his club, his show, those girls, everything. And these gangsters epitomized all the people in anyone's life who interfere with your dream, who kill it, you know. And and I saw that this this picture was not a gangster picture at all. This picture was about John. This picture was was about the struggle, his struggle, to remain an artist. And that's how he found his way into the character. And uh, the results are, are great. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic performance by Ben Gazzara. And uh, Timothy Carey shows up. He plays one of the gangsters. Seymour Cassell is in it. He plays another one of the gangsters. Al Rubin, who was a producer and cinematographer, worked with Cassavetes for many years. He shows up briefly as a lone shark named Marty. Val Avery shows up again in the small part. So a lot of the Cassavetes regulars uh, are in this one. Azizi Johari plays Ben Gazzara's girlfriend, who's a stripper at the club. She was a model, and uh, she was actually a, a Playboy model. She posed for Playboy uh, in the 70s. Now... Stylistically, this this one's really cool as well because it has a really just gritty sort of documentary-esque feel to it. Like the scenes when when Ben Gazzara is driving to the hit or those, the way they play with the red light in the strip club and there's some, some, some really, really nice uh, visuals in this film. And there are actually two cuts of it. So this came out in 1976. The original cut was uh, came in at over two hours and change. And it was in the theaters for a week, and uh, it was pulled because, <laughs> much like Husbands and several other Cassavetes films, uh, the audience didn't take to it very well initially. The picture was not well received. It was pulled from theaters, and this prompted Cassavetes to go back uh, and recut the film, and a director's cut was released uh, in 1978. And this was after he had made his next movie, Opening Night, which we'll get to in a second. So the director's cut comes out in 1978. 
and uh, it's a, almost a half hour shorter. Some sequences are trimmed. The order of certain scenes in the beginning is changed. The second half of the movie is pretty much identical to the first, from him going to complete the hit in the immediate aftermath of that and so on. And the, um, the sequences depicting the dance numbers, the show numbers in the strip club, those were trimmed down significantly. So I guess he... <laughs> Cassavetes took mercy on the viewers because those musical numbers in the strip club, oh boy, not good. <laughs> but um, I gotta be honest, I saw... I've seen both versions... And both of them are very good. I saw the original edit, the 1976 edit, at the Royal Theatre in Toronto a couple of years ago. And uh, I gotta be honest, I'm partial to the uh, the original version, the 1976 cut. But uh, I recommend... I mean, it's, it's a really good movie. I like it a lot. It's an interesting character study. And uh, I guess it's about fighting to preserve what's yours, ultimately. I guess that's what it comes down to. Knowing especially that Cosmo was... Uh, was a version of Cassavetes himself. Uh, but I recommend seeing both versions and uh, drawing your own conclusions. I gave the nod to the 1976 cut. You make of them what you will. Alright. Moving on, moving on. Opening night, 1977. Uh, so this movie follows a middle-aged uh, theater actress who's a big star... And it follows her struggle to find her way into the character she's playing in this new play. She's having a hard time finding the truth in the play. She's an alcoholic. She's hitting the bottle pretty hard. And um, her struggles are basically heightened or aggravated, if you will, by the sudden death of an admirer of hers. They're doing previews for the play in, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, before it heads over to Broadway. She walks out one night, encounters an obsessive fan... And after she parts ways with her, after brief interaction, she basically watches this fan die in a freak car accident. And it sort of turns the dial up on all her struggles surrounding this play, this performance, and how she's going to find her way into the character, and these, these concerns that everybody seems to have about her age. Cast of this film, Jenna Rollins is the lead, Myrtle Gordon. And she was 47 when this movie came out. And I only mention that because age is something that comes up a lot uh, in this movie. Uh, John Cassavetes plays another actor in the film. He is a co-star of Jenna Rowland's character in this play that they're putting on. Ben Gazzara comes back. He plays the director of the play. Paul Stewart, first time working with Cassavetes in 14 years after a child is waiting. He plays the producer of the play, David Samuels. Joan Blondell, the great Joan Blondell who's in The Public Enemy and Grease and all kinds of other credits, dozens and dozens of them. She is the playwright in the film, uh, named Sarah Good. And so you have this actress. She keeps insisting that she is okay with her age. She doesn't have any complexes or insecurities about it. And she is basically the star of this play that is written by a woman who's considerably older than her, Joan Blondell's character. They have to be 15, 20 years apart. And the playwright's outlook on aging is kind of fatalistic. It's defeatist. Sort of like, okay, you've had your fun. Now you're entering the last chapter of your life. And quite simply, I mean, Jenna Rowland's character, Myrtle Gordon, she just isn't with that. She does not agree with that outlook at all. She's like, okay, well, first of all, I'm not as old as the playwright. So it's, it's, it's unfair and inaccurate, really, for her to be projecting these preconceived notions about aging onto me when we're not even the same age, nowhere close to it, really. And second, 
even if that's the case. Okay, I'm getting older, so what do I do? I just fucking roll over and die. It's like, all right, you've had your fun. Now I'm an old dame. I just wait for Father Time to, to show up. And that is the meat of her struggle with this play. And she's an alcoholic, like I said. She's reeling from the death of this fan that she just witnessed. And she's starting to have visions of her, and she ends up seeing her as this sort of idealized version of her youth, when all her emotions were on the surface, and she had a much easier time sort of uh, finding the truth in her roles and, and putting these, these performances together. And uh, she ends up clashing with the playwright, Jim Blondell's character, Ben Gazzara, the director, who, who has feelings for her. I'm not ready to play grandmothers yet. You know, you're very clever. If I'm good at this part, my career is severely limited. Limited to what? Once you're convincing in a part, the audience accepts you as that. As what? As old, that's what, old. Are you gonna quit? No. I'm looking for a way to play this part where age doesn't make any difference. Age isn't interesting, age is depressing, age is dull, age doesn't have anything to do with anything. Listen, Sarah, I don't have a husband, I don't have a family. This, this is it for me. I mean, I get my kicks out of acting. If I can reach, reach a woman sitting in the audience who thinks that nobody understands anything and my character goes through everything that she's going through, well, I feel like I've done a good job. But oftentimes, and for the most part, Jean Blondel and Ben Gazzara, their characters, the director and the playwright, respectively, they, uh, they tend to sort of write off Jenna Rowan's behavior as self-indulgent because she pulls these stunts during the previews. She starts improvising. She's an alcoholic, of course. Uh, and she's in the middle of... She's basically on the verge of a nervous breakdown after, you know, being in this crisis and witnessing the death of this fan, this young fan of hers. And she basically breaks down on stage and she... Simply put, the preview performances are pretty disastrous, pretty messy. What is it? You want to be loved on the stage? No. You feel this woman is sick? No. You feel she's confused? She's not confused. Well, you feel she's happy? You feel she's sad? What is it you feel about? Nothing. Uh, listen, every word that Myrtle says is on paper. <laughs> you were sitting around talking like she has to manufacture the words. <clears throat> you see this? Act one, act two, act three. All you have to do is say the lines clearly and with a degree of feeling. And then the Virginia will appear. you're pulling stunts you're not showing up prepared or you can't you can't get it together you know when you're working with other people you have other co-stars and they need to be kept in the loop as to where you're at and what's happening and of course you know you're all in this together um then yeah i it does make sense for them to sort of deem her behavior a little self-indulgent especially on stage but that being said and i guess this is part of what cassavetes was trying to depict in, in opening night is that if you're a performer and you're trying to find your way into a role, you put in all this work, you put yourself through hell sometimes, 
and dig deep to find this character and find the truth in the play and in, the, in your performance, you're putting a lot on the line. And I think the movie, ultimately, what it's about is one, yeah, it's about aging very much and how we perceive it and how we sort of project our perception of it onto other people. I mean, you see very early on in the film, you see Jenna Rowland's character, Myrtle, she's struggling. She says, she says quite plainly, she goes, I'm struggling to find the reality in the reality. I'm paraphrasing it. But then you have Joan Blondell's character who basically just responds saying, oh, there's so much of you in this character. There's so much of you in this play. So yeah, the play is very much about age and how, uh, and how some people choose to look at it. And also, and perhaps more importantly, it's about what performers put themselves through and just what exactly it is they put on the line when they go out on stage every night. The one person in the, in the, in the film that is obsessed and is wrong is a professional woman who says, I want to do my job the best that I can. And she's told not to because of society. She's told uh, she'll be fired. She's told she's too old. Age comes up. Well, it's the truth. Age is the truth. And she's confused by it. And she examines it. And she's one of the finest people I've ever seen in my life. And we go back and forth between uh, our own lives on the screen, the theatricality involved, and uh, uh, the blessing of expressing oneself, you know? I'm not ashamed of that. I think it's wonderful to express <clears throat> oneself. If you sort of assess the risk of the main characters invo involved in this movie, you have, yeah, Ben Gazzara's character, he's the director, and he says pretty plainly early on in the film that he's like, my, my life depends on this play, and you know, it has to be a success. He can't, he can't afford for the play to be a flop. Paul Stewart is the producer, of course, he's the money man, so of course there's, there's a very literal investment uh, for him in this. But you have Joan Blondell's character, who's the playwright, she's got to be in her 60s, and of course she's, a, she's hugely successful already. Uh, but none of them are going out on stage and putting it on the line for eight shows a week. Uh, and I think that's something worth noting when you're sort of trying to figure out exactly what it is that's wrong with Myrtle Gordon. And I really like this film, and there are some fantastic performances in it. Jenna Rollins, of course, is incredible as usual, and the supporting cast is great. Paul Stewart, Joan Blondell, Ben Gazzara, Fred Draper. Catherine Cassavetti shows up again. Jenna Rollins' mom, Lady Rollins, shows up again briefly. So a lot of the Cassavetti stock company, if you will, uh, is in this. They're, they really are marvelous performances. Oh, isn't it the truth? Marvelous. And uh, Seymour Cassell and Peter Falk show up briefly as themselves at, uh, at the very end. So does Peter Bogdanovich, a legendary director who we'll be, we'll be covering on this show at some point. Now, like many Cassavetti's films, this, this, this movie ran into some problems. They, uh, they actually had to go on a three-week hiatus during the making of the film because they ran out of money. And uh, they basically had to stop shooting until Cassavetes could get the funds together. And the movie opened on Christmas of 1977. Limited screening, so it wasn't shown in very many places. Uh, the turnouts were terrible. The critics were, again, not super complimentary. Not what you would call a warm reception. And unfortunately, the, uh, the movie got pulled from theaters less than two months after it was released. Uh, and it didn't pick up an American distributor until 1991, which was two years after Cassavetes had died, unfortunately. And I'm sick. I'm sick that this is such a little sissy town that they will only go to see something that is going to be successful, that a corporation says is great. And I'm telling you, we have something so much better. 
so wonderful that you are just privileged to see this movie. I'm sick because there are just such a bunch of sissies in this world that they won't go out and see something that's wonderful and they hear it's wonderful and other people will tell them it's wonderful but is it going to be a success? Is it going to be a success? I don't care if it's going to be a success. I want those suckers to come in there and to see this movie because they'll see what they always wanted to be and that is to be theatrical, to be wonderful, to be, to be liked, to be friends, to be... Uh, to have something in their life that is warmer and to regard someone that has more guts than you do and to be inspired by people. Uh, that said, when it came out, uh, Jenna Rollins and Joan Blondell were both nominated for Golden Globes for Best Lead and uh, Best Supporting Actress. And so that's that for opening night. A very good one. One of the better ones in Cassavetti's catalog. So, the next one we get to is Gloria, which came out in 1980. Now, this one is uh, this one's interesting. So the premise of the movie is Jenna Rollins again in an Oscar-nominated performance, and as usual, she's fantastic in this. She plays a former mob mall, and she uh, she basically uh, has to go on the run with a little boy, the son of a neighbor, after after the kid's parents were murdered by the mob, and the boy is her neighbor's son. They get killed because her husband was skimming off the top and ratting them out to the FBI. So the mob shows up. They, of course, do away with the parents. The kid has a valuable book containing very sensitive information that the mob does not want to get out. And so the movie is essentially a chase, where Jenna Rollins and the kid are basically trying to outsmart and outrun the mob. Now, essentially, uh, Cassavetes wrote this script just intending to sell it to Columbia Pictures. He didn't, he didn't write it with the intention of directing it. I mean, he was... This was probably going to be, you know, one of his usual things. I sell this and I use the money to make the movie I want to make. But essentially what happened was, apparently, Barbara Streisand turned down the role of Gloria. I don't know if this is true or not. I read this somewhere. I haven't verified it. Uh, it would be very interesting to have seen Barbara Streisand as Gloria. Uh, in any case, Jenna Rollins ended up taking the role. And it was, I think, her involvement that got Cassavetes to direct it. And they teamed back up again. Uh, but as Casavetti said himself, I think he called it, he called it a fast-moving, thoughtless piece about gangsters, and I don't even know any gangsters. <laughs> and, and true to what he, true to what he says, it actually is very fast-moving and more action-packed, at least in the superficial sense, than, than his previous works. And so, Jenna Rollins has to care for this kid and get him to safety. And they're trying to outrun the mob. And you know what? It is pretty cool in that it kind of defies convention because she is... Jenna Rowland's character is your classic sort of gun mall, right? But in the sense... But it, it is different in the sense that, one, in mob movies, most of the time, the mob mall is basically nothing more than a love interest. She's, like, you know, she's a sort of ancillary character. So this puts, this puts the mob mall at the center of the movie. And it also kind of fucks... It, it's kind of a bit of a fuck you to the genre, too, in that it's a woman who is kind of outsmarting and outmaneuvering out these career criminals, which is pretty cool. And Jenna just fucking hits it out of the park, as always. And like I said, she got nominated for an Oscar. This was in 1980, so Sissy Spacek won for A Coal Miner's Daughter, but a fantastic performance from, from Jenna, nonetheless. Go ahead, Trent. Love it. Okay. Okay. Sissies. You let a woman beat ya. You little tiny nothing. You punks. 
so yeah, and a bit in terms of subject matter, I mean, it's it's a big departure from from uh, the stuff we were we we become used to seeing from we had become used to seeing from Cassavetes by then, but still some pretty cool stuff. I mean, a lot, and there's some really cool sequences early on. These early sequences in in the sort of rundown project building that the main characters live in and where where the action begins, it was shot in the Concourse Plaza Hotel in New York City in the Bronx. This was actually Cassavetes' return to New York. He hadn't shot a movie there in close to a decade. And they, sh they shoot at the Concourse Plaza Hotel. It was in the Bronx, and it used to be a real hotspot, like a real swanky place. I mean, politicians, judges, and pro athletes used to live there. Apparently, Babe Ruth had a suite there at one time. And uh, But after World War II, the buildings started decaying and got neglected. And by the time Gloria was shot, I guess this would have been 79, uh, the building was had been abandoned for a few years. It's a good movie. I mean... Again, a kind of a departure from the Cassavetti genre, from the not the Cassavetti genre, but I mean the the Cassavetti's you know, classic themes that were that we were used to seeing treated. So the the kid who goes on the run with Jenna is played by uh, was played by a kid named John Adams or Juan Adams, uh, I think is his proper name, and he was eight years old at the time, and he's a decent actor, not bad, but you know to give the kid a break, I mean he's in almost every scene and he's <laughs> he's really asked to do a lot in this. What's funny, my nose? No, you're so tough. I'm tough? I don't mean tough. So strong. You know. Yeah, I know, I know. But it's, it's Jenna's movie. She carries it. And it's really good to see, like, City as character. It was shot in New York. Uh, and it's always it's always a treat just watching old New York and, and the role it plays in a lot of these older movies. That's that for Gloria. There's really not much to it. Uh, it's a good watch. It's not uh, Cassavetti's best. A bit of a departure from uh, his usual work. But a good one nonetheless. Next. Love Streams, 1984. Now. Love Streams is starring Jenna Rollins once again. John Cassavetes, he and Jenna actually play siblings in this, even though they were husband and wife in real life. Seymour Cassell plays uh, Jenna Rowland's ex estranged ex-husband, Jack. And Diane Abbott is in this as well. She plays uh, a nightclub singer who has a bit of a dalliance with John Cassavetes' character. Also had a small role in Taxi Driver in 1976 and was actually Robert De Niro's first wife. Fun fact. So the four of them are in this. They're the four chief roles. This film was actually, uh, this was a stage play initially. Now, after Gloria was made, Cassavetes went back to the theater and they found a small venue in California and uh, it was where they staged three plays of love and hate. The first play was called Knives, which was written by Cassavetes himself and Peter Falk actually uh, starred in it on stage. The other two plays, The Third Day Comes and Love Streams, were written by Ted Allen. Ted Allen was from Montreal. He was uh, he was actually the screenwriter on uh, the movie Middle of Nowhere, which was later released as the Webster Boy that we mentioned earlier before the making of Too Late Blues. So it reunites Ted Allen and John Cassavetes. And um, Ted Allen was also nominated for an Oscar in 1975 for the screenplay of a movie called Lies My Father Told Me. So they staged these three plays in California, and the play of Love Streams initially starred Jenna Rollins and John Voight, and John Cassavetes took 
John Voight's role for the film. And it follows these two siblings who uh, come to depend on each other. Jenna Rowland's character goes through a divorce with her husband Jack, who's played by Seymour Cassell. And John Cassavetes is a writer who lives a pretty hedonistic and empty lifestyle. He just wants to keep the party going. And his estranged son is sort of thrust upon him one day. And he is faced with, uh, with his emotional ineptitude, if you will. And uh, this sort of complicated relationship he has with his son. The two siblings uh, reunite following this, their, their own personal turmoil and uh, come to depend on each other. And it's interesting here because you have these two characters, starting with Jenna Rowland's character, Sarah. You have a woman who, not unlike her character in Woman Under the Influence, wants to please everybody, and her happiness and her life are directly dependent on the people in it, in this case, her husband and her daughter. And she loses them. And um, essentially, she doesn't really know what to do with herself. She goes to see a psychiatrist, who's actually played by her brother, David Rowland's. And he tells her to go get laid and do something creative and take a trip to Europe. And of course, everything she does, she invests her entire self in wholeheartedly. And she is basically a woman who is just kind of too sensitive for her own good and invests far too much in everything. Everything she does, she does all the way. And much like Jenna Rowland's character in A Woman Under the Influence, with those, that, those investments uh, usually come with expectations. And when those expectations aren't met, you're in for a lot of hurt, for a lot of pain. Love is a stream. It's continuous. It doesn't stop. No, it does stop. Oh, no. It does not stop. Your love is too strong for your family. And so... Her attempts to sort of move on uh, from her divorce and her failed marriage aren't met with the greatest results. <laughs> and on the other side of that, you have John Cassavetti's character, Robert Harmon, who is Sarah's brother. And essentially, he, uh, like I said before, he is emotionally inept, and much like the characters in Husbands, uh, he is totally and utterly incapable, and unwilling for that matter, to express or articulate his, uh, his troubles, his concerns. And you see him, he, is, he basically wants to keep himself from looking inwards at all times. He, he, he hires call girls or prostitutes, women, to come to his house and spend days at a time, and it's basically just a 24-hour party, and there's booze, and there's sex, and there's all that good stuff. But again, much like, it's basically this sort of empty escapism, not unlike husbands. And his son gets thrust upon him, by his ex-wife, second ex-wife, and uh, he is forced to care for this, his son, who he doesn't know and has never really spent much time with. And it's funny because his initial reaction is like, well, okay, you're not going to interrupt my routine. I'm not going to stop this party just because you, you showed up on my doorstep. So he basically forces his son into this this crazy, you know, partying lifestyle of his. And of course, his son freaks out. It doesn't go over very well. But you see towards the end of their, uh, their interaction, their stay together, if you will, that for all his faults, for all his inadequacies and his emotional ineptitude, he does love his son, but he is incapable of expressing it. And 
there's a moment, a really sad and moving moment, I won't go into detail about it, where he basically just accepts the fact that he, um, he basically tells himself that it's too late for him to be a father to his son, even though he does love him. And so with that, Robert Harmon and his sister Sarah are left with nothing but each other. She leaves Chicago. She comes to stay with him. And initially, it appears as though she needs him far more than he needs her. You know, I'm going to do this damn thing. I really am. I'm going to find balance. And I think you should do it too. You know, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to... I'm going to buy you a baby. Really. You really need some living thing that you could love, Robert, you know? Just, it could be just a little, little animal that you could take care of and kiss and Please sleep don't. with. And you'd be balanced, I'd be balanced. Please. Huh? Then I can go back to being obsessive about my family. But as she stays with him, and basically does what Sarah does, of course, you know, tries to please everyone and make everyone happy, and she goes out and buys a bunch of farm animals. Again, she takes everything to the extreme. She buys ponies and goats and ducks and chicks. Uh, and, you know, she's trying to brighten the place up and in inject some life and some joy. And so it does appear early on as, as though she, uh, she needs someone to make happy because she doesn't know any other way to live. But as time progresses and she stays with him a little more, you come to find out that, in fact... It's Robert Harmon, Cassavetti's character, who needs his sister Sarah far more than she needs him. But unfortunately, she wakes up from this really elaborate dream sequence, and she emerges from it resolute to go back to Chicago and reunite with her, her, her ex-husband and her daughter and, you know, take another stab at it. So even though it's an ill-advised move that will probably end in disaster once again, she's intent on going through with it. But by then, she's changed her brother's life for the better. Robert Harmon has sort of given up his partying and his... He's quieted down. He's not indulging in this sort of... This escapism anymore. And actually, this, these, these animals have given him a sense of purpose. He has someone to take care of, someone to look after. And as much as he doesn't want to let his sister go back to Chicago... One, because... Again, it will probably end in disaster. But most importantly, he needs her. And that's the first time you hear him express what he feels and what he wants in very plain and simple terms. But it's too late. And he has to let her leave. And yet, after all that, again, there is no closure. But there is a glimmer of hope that, yeah, he appears to have changed for the better and hopefully it'll stay that way. Or that he'll keep changing for the better. And so that's it for Love Streams as far as the story goes. Uh, interestingly, this one, like several Cassavetti's films, was actually mostly shot in uh, in the house he shared with Jenna Rollins and their three children in California. Uh, even though this was shot by Al Rubin, a longtime cinematographer, there is actually no handheld camera work in this one. The camera work is actually very clean and straightforward, if you will, which is unlike, unlike uh, Cassavetti's films of old. This won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival, which is no small feat. And uh, one of the songs in the film 
Cassavetes wrote. It's called Almost in Love with You. He uh, co-wrote it with Bo Harwood, who did the music and the sound for Cassavetes for many, many years. And when it came out, when the movie was released on videotape, this came out in 1984, the distributors uh, actually cut some footage, or they, they changed Cassavetes' initial cut of it when it was released on videotape, but the proper cut is actually two hours and 20 minutes long, and I believe that's the, the most common cut in circulation. And it's a really good one, and it sort of combines a lot of the themes and behaviors that you see in Cassavetes' films of old. And it's a really moving and sweet and uh, kind of heartbreaking film. And also there's a, there's a documentary about it that you can find easily. It's on YouTube. It's called uh, I'm Almost Not Crazy. And it basically follows the behind-the-scenes, the, uh, the making of Love Streams. Now, off we go. This is the last film in the Cassavetes catalog. And unfortunately, this marked his return to the studio system. And the results were just as, if not more, disastrous than... Uh, those of his initial stint under the studio system in the early 60s. So the last movie he directed was called Big Trouble. This came out in 1986. And uh, it starred Alan Arkin, Peter Falk, who were reunited after the success of The In-Laws in 1979, Beverly D'Angelo, Charles Durning, fantastic legendary character actor, who was in Dog of the Afternoon, among many other things, uh, Valerie Curtin, who was the ex-wife of Barry Levinson, and she also starred in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. The, she and Barry Levinson were writing partners, if I remember correctly. So it's a really good cast, but it was plagued with problems for the jump. So so it essentially, it's basically a spoof and an homage of sorts to a movie called Double Indemnity, which came out in 1944. So Alan Arkin's character, the insurance salesman, plots with Beverly D'Angelo's character to kill her husband, who's played by Peter Falk, so they can collect on the insurance and double indemnity clause and, you know, shenanigans ensue. Alan Arkin's character has to wants to send his... is getting pressured by his wife to send their children to, to an Ivy League school and he needs the money to pay for it and so on and so forth. So this plot is hatched and, you know, the plot thickens. Now, Big Trouble was written by Andrew Bergman, who had co-written Blazing Saddles. He wrote The In-Laws... Really funny guy, fantastic screenwriter, and he was also slated to direct Big Trouble. This is before Cassavetes enters the picture. Now, even before then, this movie was in trouble because the legal department at Columbia Pictures, again, this reunites Cassavetes with Columbia. So the legal department basically thought the story of Big Trouble was so close to double indemnity that they were they would have to obtain the license or the rights of double indemnity so that they wouldn't get sued. Now, the rights to Double Indemnity were owned by Universal. Universal was uh, run by a guy named Frank Price, who used to be a big shot at Columbia. Now, Columbia, by the time Big Trouble was being made, was run by a guy named Guy McElwain. Guy McElwain approached Frank Price for the rights to Double Indemnity so that they could be in the clear from a legal standpoint when Big Trouble came out. And Frank Price knew at the time that Columbia owned several scripts, one of which was Back to the Future. So essentially, Frank Price brokers a deal, an exchange of sorts, in which Columbia gets the license for double indemnity, and uh, Universal gets a couple of scripts of Frank Price's choosing, one of which was Back to the Future, which became one of the most successful films of all time. Now, <laughs> and that was only the beginning of the trouble. Cassavetes called this film the aptly named Big Trouble, and holy fuck was he right. So, <laughs> they get the license to double indemnity. McElwain, the head of Columbia, ends up firing Andrew Bergman a week into production. 
and that's where John Cassavetes comes in. He brings in Cassavetes to direct it. Now, <laughs> Cassavetes, in a repeat of his experience of making A Child is Waiting, he starts clashing with Columbia Pictures. They vetoed a lot of his decisions on how he wanted to shoot the movie. And again, they took the movie from him. They edited it their way. Edited it. Um, so they cut it their way. He did not agree with the final cut. The movie comes out. And it turns out to be a flop. Bergman wants his name taken off the movie. So the screenwriting, the, the writing credit, is actually credited to Warren Bogle. Uh, and unfortunately, that was the last movie Cassavetes directed. And again, most people don't even include it in his body of work because, quite frankly, I mean, all things considered, he had very little to do with it. Yeah, just a fucking shit show from the start. It was doomed to fail, really. And it did fail. It was a flop, not well received. And uh, unfortunately, it was the last film Cassavetes directed. And it's a shame because he went back to the studio system after 20 plus years away from it. And uh, the results were the same as they were in the early 60s. And so, after that, he goes back to the theater in 1987. His play, Woman of Mystery, uh, was staged at the Court Theater in London. And he had been working on, uh, on shooting a movie called She's the Lovely, based on a script he had written. And he wanted Sean Penn to star in it. And uh, in the last year of his life, he had been working towards uh, sort of getting the financing together and putting a production together to shoot it. Unfortunately... He died February 3rd, 1989, at the age of 59 from cirrhosis. He was a heavy drinker, and he had had it for several years at that point. In fact, if you watch uh, I'm Almost Not Crazy, the documentary of uh, the making of Love Streams, Love Streams came out in 1984, and even during the making of it, you could see you could see uh, Cassavetes wasn't healthy. He had this big gut, and it's a common effect of cirrhosis. There's fluid buildup in the abdomen, and it causes your stomach to get all distended, and it leaves you with this big-ass sort of nasty looking gut and he had that during the making of love streams so he had been he had been dealing with cirrhosis for many years and finally uh he passed away in 1989 and at the time of his death he had many unproduced screenplays he had written a few plays as well he had a novel titled husband which i suppose was based on the story of the movie and uh the last play he wrote called begin the begin was actually staged 25 years after his death in Vienna. And uh, Jenna Rollins is still with us. She is 91 this year. And uh, they had three children together. She and Cassavetes did. Their son, Nick, who directed uh, The Notebook, which Jenna Rollins is also in. He directed Alpha Dog. So Nick Cassavetes ended up directing She's So Lovely, which came out in 1997. And as his father wished, Sean Penn starred in it. This was based on the script. She's the lovely that uh, Cassavetes had written and was uh, was trying to get made into a movie before his death. Alexandra and Zoe are uh, Cassavetes' two daughters. They're also writers and directors themselves. And Zoe directed a movie called Broken English, which came out in 2007, one you might have heard of. And uh, that's all I got for John Cassavetes, and I hope there was a lot of babble. I apologize. This is my first time... This is my first time doing this, my first episode, and I got a lot of nerves and a, a lot of preparation, and I wanted to do his body of work justice, and I had a lot of information to unpack. I hope I did his body of work justice. So, uh, please, if I manage to pique your interest or make you curious about any of these works, any of these films, please go see them. Get acquainted with Cassavetti's work, because it, like I said, and as I believe of every director we're going to cover on this show, this these works need to be celebrated and they need to be... Uh, they need to keep being seen. 
So, thank you for tuning in. And if you uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at closedsetpod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, feedback, constructive criticism, whatever you got, I would love to hear it. And if you want to, uh, if there's a director that worked anywhere between the 30s and 80s that you would like to see covered on the show, please feel free to let me know. Drop us a line, write us, and you can follow us on Instagram at Closed Set Podcast. That's Closed Set Podcast. I'll be posting updates and keep you in the loop as to new ep- for uh, new episodes and posting links and all that good stuff. And I'll be posting all the literature and any uh, links to documentaries of interest regarding uh, the subjects of every episode. And I'll be doing that with this one as well. So please feel free to get in touch, follow us, subscribe. You can find us on Podbean, and you can find them on Apple Podcasts as well, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcast. So please subscribe. And uh, until next time, take care of yourselves. To have a philosophy is to, to know how to love and to know where to put it. Because you can't put it everywhere. You walk around, you've got to be a, a minister or a priest saying, yes, my son, or yes, my daughter, bless you. But people don't live that way. They, they live uh, with anger and hostility and problems and uh, lack of money, uh, lack of, you know, tremendous disappointments in their life. Uh, they're, so what they need is a philosophy. What I think what everybody needs is a, is a way to say, where and how can I love? Can I be in love so that I can live? So that I can live with some degree of peace, you know? And I, I guess every picture we've ever done has been in a way to try to find some kind of philosophy uh, for the characters in the film. I have a need to uh, for the characters to really analyze love, discuss it, kill it, uh, destroy it, hurt each other, do all that stuff in, in that in that war, in that word polemic and picture polemic of uh, of what life is. And the rest of the stuff really doesn't interest me, you know. It may interest other people, but I, you know, I have one track mind. That's all I'm interested in is love.